it is virtually impossible for me to know everyone in this podcast's audience. I mean, I don't know you, most likely. But I can make an educated guess that if you're listening to a show like this, it's because you've been bitten by the podcasting bug. It's really hard to define, but there's something about it that's appealing to you. Something about hearing your own voice recorded that kind of sets something on fire inside of you. Now, a lot of people, once they're into podcasting, get bit as well by this monetization bug, meaning, man, I really love doing this podcasting thing. So if there was a way that I could make this work to my advantage in producing some sort of monetary gain, some sort of income, man, that would be great. Now, the way to monetize that seems to bubble to the surface most of the time is the idea of sponsorships. And as a person who helps people launch podcasts, I often get people asking me something like this. What sort of download numbers do I need to legitimately approach a sponsor to help me monetize my show? But friends, let me tell you right now, the sponsorship route is typically not the best way for most podcasters to monetize their show. And even if you do get a sponsor, it can be a little tricky to negotiate those kind of deals. There are definitely better ways to go about it for 95% of podcasters out there. Here's an example. I spend six hours a month and you're making $2,000 for those uh, six hours. You know, that's a pretty good return on investment. That, my friends, is the voice of Ashley Hodge. He's a financial planner, a wealth advisor, and he's using his podcast to demonstrate his expertise and his philosophy to draw in people who think the same way and would love to work with someone like him. If you take the time to listen to Ashley's story, which I'm gonna highlight for you on this episode, you're gonna hear that making money from your podcast doesn't have to be all that confusing. Way back in 2003-2004, an amazing new media technology was developed. It was audio content that could be directly delivered to anyone who subscribes to it. And they called it a podcast. Since that time, podcasting technology has improved and the number of shows have increased exponentially. In these special edition audio sessions of my show, Podcastification, I feature the stories of the people who have found success creating their own podcast, and I'm calling them Podcaster Stories. Though it may sound kind of elite to be a wealth manager like Ashley is, it was not that way for him growing up. He didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth and a lot of privilege. I think Ashley really tells the story better than I do. So let's listen to what he has to say about it. In high school, I would probably describe myself as a guy that loved basketball, but more of a slacker academically. And so I had a reputation because I would sneak a pillow into a, a gym bag 
and and do a lot of my sleeping in class. <laughs> uh, I had one high school uh, teacher say that not only would would you never go to college, but I doubt you'll ever be gainfully employed. You oh know? my goodness! <laughs> I mean, that's uh, unfortunately the reputation I developed and, and probably well deserved. So you know, at some point, you have to have some discipline to play basketball. And you know, I think I started realizing that hey, this discipline needs to carry over to other parts of my life. And so I started becoming a voracious reader, something my dad has always been. So I'm sure that it's more of a caught than taught type of thing uh, that I just saw him reading all the time and and saw how he had a humble curiosity and was always learning. And, and that became an attractive quality. So I, I wanted to do that myself. So as I got into college, I went to Baylor University and I was able to start this journey of lifelong learning. And I was a business major a, a good student, not a great student. But I think as I was uh, going through college, I started working a lot of different jobs, trying to get new experiences. I sold cutlery and cookware, a product called Cutco. Yeah. And I did really well with that for three or four years through my college years and had some various other odd jobs. And and so I, th- I, th- I thought I wanted to go into a, some sort of a sales position and then just through my reading, finance and uh, financial planning and wealth management became more and more interesting. So I started that a couple years out of college and have been doing that since uh, I was 23 years old. You describe yourself as an academic slacker, but somehow within those four years of high school, you went from that description to a person who was more self-motivated to improve yourself or better yourself. How do you see that happening? I mean, have you processed that very much? As you were asking that question, the thing that came to mind was I've always had trouble sitting still and, you know, like a lot of guys I, I think could relate to this and, you know, listening to an hour lecture or or, or even an hour sermon. You know, I, I, I joke with the pastor of the church that I go to that, uh, you know, almost enjoy listening to his sermons on double speed you know, because it's, it's so much more time effective, <laughs> time efficient to do that. And, and, and I can pick up everything, you know, that he says. Uh, so I, th- I think, you know, part of it was just the classroom structure of having to sit still, listen to a lecture for 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, that just never really did it for me. I, I, you know, I've always done better with shorter periods of instruction. Even now when I read, I set a timer and I read something for 15 minutes and I take a break and then I read, I read something else for 15 minutes. So I think for me, my attention spans usually 15 to 30 minutes max. So you mentioned earlier the power of setting goals. Talk to me about that for a little bit. What do you mean exactly when you say setting a goal and how do you go about doing that in a way that's actually something you follow through on? It's always been a struggle, uh, even though I, I believe wholeheartedly in the process of setting goals, you know, the, the actual discipline and implementation of those goals is all, is always a challenge because like most people, you know, it's, it's easy to follow for a few weeks and then it's a little harder to follow longer term, Yeah, you know, but I, I've just found that uh, I keep a notebook with all my goals and I try to refer to that at least once a week. So just constantly, focusing in on that and and recalibrating and you know self-evaluation is am I living the way I want to live is there something I need to tinker with uh to get on track towards that goal again you know so I, that's really what kind of led me into 
this whole st- stewardship mindset and and an understanding that you know everything we have is a gift from God and and it's it's really our job to try to maximize these resources uh, while we live and 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 to try to you know do as much good to as many people as we can. I mean that's the ideal. Obviously, I fall short of that. Everybody falls short of that, but you just want to want to constantly be recalibrating towards that goal. And so, and so that's what I try to do is, is set goals and areas that I think are the most important parts of my life and, and to try to always be failing forward in those areas. Yeah. And so you're talking about a wide spectrum of types of goals, uh, personal, right. professional, uh, family oriented. You could fill in the blanks, but I assume there's a lot of different ones. Do you break those goals down into actionable steps and you've you've got a plan for how you're going to reach it or does it depend on the goal? I do. Like I, I set goals and the four areas that I track are money, abilities, time, and health. Hmm. And and so I, I set a goal in those areas and then I have actionable steps uh, to, to reach those goals. Yeah. So that's part of the process for sure. Yeah, that's great. I've I've always found goals to be a very empowering thing because, you know, seeing progress, I think we all appreciate that in life and the yeah. ability to actually see, you know, I'm, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm definitely not where I was. And that's a helpful thing. Now, when you hear Ashley talking about the power of goals and how he goes about setting goals, it may seem like just a foregone conclusion to you that yeah a guy who's dealing with wealth management and financial planning those are important things he's got to set goals he's got to have goals that makes total sense but let me point something out to you in everything in life including your podcast whether it's a hobby podcast or a hopefully a money-making deal you need to learn how to set goals Goals are what drive you forward. Goals are what give you something to shoot for. And goals are eventually the things you attain that keep you moving forward. Don't let Ashley's words about goals in the context of financial planning make you think what he just shared doesn't apply to you. In fact, I think you should go back and listen to that section two or three times. It's helped me already just in my editing process to listen to what he's saying and reapply it to my own life, even though I already believe in the power of goals. There's always time for a reset. There's always time to refine the process a little more so you really know what you're shooting for. You've alluded a few times to uh, your faith and uh, the importance of your Christian faith in particular. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Where did you get introduced to the Christian faith and how has that played a role in your life? I was fortunate enough to grow up with that influence. I, I grew up with uh, parents who were active in a church and I was in church as a, as a young kid through my teenage years. And so I had that foundation. Uh, I would say that like a lot of kids, you don't inherit faith. Yeah. Uh, faith has to become real to you at some point. And so even though I realized the value of it and you know, I didn't equate it to a real personal relationship. It was more about doing good, doing right. Yeah. You know, the, this is what good kids do. This is what bad kids do, do. But in college, as I was on my own and, and I was away from home, I went to Baylor University. And even though that was a Christian school, that really wasn't the reason I chose it. I, I chose it for much shallower reasons. I 
got on campus, saw a lot of good looking girls, uh, saw that they had at the time a really good football team. And so those, <laughs> those two things were like, okay, these are two things I can say are part of a good college experience and, and, uh, everything else, you know, is kind of icing on the cake, you know, so I didn't, didn't have really faith motivated purposes for, for choosing a college, but, but I definitely found a deep faith at Baylor and it was through some relationships that I had on my freshman hall. And it was through a Bible study that we started together and just exploring the faith with fresh eyes for the first time, I think was, was really the most, the thing that really impacted me. Mm, that's really interesting. My my story is real similar. College was really the time when my personal growth and faith became of greater importance to me. So it's interesting we we share that parallel there. Yeah. So you mentioned that as you came out of college, you did a few different things, Cutco being one of those, which is interesting. I hear quite a few entrepreneurs who have developed their career with a basis or a foundation that they learned at Cutco, which is quite quite interesting. But as you started considering financial planning and wealth management, I can imagine that there may have been some tension there that you felt. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, some circles of Christianity make it sound like poverty is a virtue and the love of money, you know, is the root of all evil, which is what scripture says, but they get that distorted in their own minds. So explain to me if that was a struggle and if so, how you navigated that. So I actually, when I graduated from college, I was working various sales jobs. I, I was, I wanted to make a career of Cutco at the time and I had some success with it, but then I quickly realized that this, the good results that you have in the summertime, because the, that business is really predicated yeah. on using college students as your, as your salespeople, uh, it kind of goes lean in the fall and the spring when you don't have the college students working for you. Uh, so I quickly transitioned and, and I sold cars for a year uh, with, with a buddy of mine from college. His dad had a car dealership in Kentucky. And so I moved to Kentucky, sold cars, did well, was was one of the top salespeople in, in their dealerships. And, and I actually won a trip to Bermuda uh, while I was selling cars. And it was it was on that trip, I was working seven days a week, working long hours, and I really had a, a paradigm shift and, and decided that I wanted to go into financial planning. And so really it was, it was more motivated, not by spiritual calling. Uh, it should have been, but at the time it was just motivated by, Hey, I think this is what I'm good at. I think this is where my giftedness lines up. And I think I can make a lot of money doing this. And so that, and that was really my motivation in my early twenties. Uh, so I, packed everything I had in my U-Haul from Kentucky. I told uh, the dealership that I was going to move to Texas and and start a, a life as a financial planner. <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I didn't have a job lined up. I probably only had about $2,000 in the bank, and which I thought was all the money in the world. I, I was able to pay off all my debts from college uh, through selling cars. So I was, I was excited to be out of debt. But I moved to Texas and didn't even think that, hey, you need to have a job to get an apartment and, and things like that. Uh, so I, I was uh, bumming on the floor of a buddy's apartment for a couple of weeks while I was uh, finding a job and, and was able to get another car sales job and then start applying for financial planning, uh, investment management type jobs. And I got a job with Merrill Lynch uh, a few months after that. Yeah. So why financial planning? Had you already been exposed 
to that career path previously? No, my mom was a CPA and she had a friend that was a financial planner. And so I think there was a good feeling about the profession from that. I think Wall Street, uh, the movie Wall Street was was somewhat of a motivation. I, I, I found it interesting. The one that was in the 1987, 1988 timeframe. So, so I think that probably got intrigued me more to the profession. And, and I, and I had that experience from Cutco at the time I started at Merrill Lynch, it was still a culture of here's a phone book. You need to call a hundred people a day. You need to, you need to reach a hundred people a day. And four of these will become leads. One of those four will turn into an appointment. Yeah. It's a numbers game. Do the numbers. And, and I was young and dumb enough not to really care about the rejection. So I, w- I just did it. You know, I did exactly what they told me to do and, and was able to build a clientele through that. Walk me through the first five to 10 years, or maybe you didn't stay that long at Merrill Lynch. Walk me through the first s- season, I say, of your new career path and what was the way you expected it would be and what wasn't? You know, it was an interesting time. It was 1993 through 99. So those were some really good years for the stock market at the end of the nineties. A lot of excesses started to build, uh, you know, through that time. So it was kind of the boom of some of these internet companies and technology companies. There was still, you know, definitely a gunslinger approach. You know, I remember the hot names were companies like Intel, JDS Uniphase, which ended up blowing up, Qualcomm. You know, you you had AOL, you had all these uh, companies that, you know, it's almost like this idea that, you know, this future with the internet starting to develop was going to be this unlimited prosperity. Uh, So it was an exciting time from that standpoint, you know, a time that was really filled with a lot of excessive euphoria and, and greed. And even though, in my heart, you know, I knew spiritually and I knew uh, that this didn't feel right, you know, that, that trees don't ever grow, you know, to the sky forever. You know, they, they eventually reach limits. There, there was still that, you know, getting caught up in it because that's, the, that's what you do every day and everybody else is getting caught up in it. So, you know, it, it, it was a very exciting time and, and uh, you know, a time when there was a lot of enthusiasm about investing. So I was the beneficiary of uh, coming up in those years where there was interest. You know, when, when you talk to somebody about investing, there was a lot of interest on the other end of the phone. Yeah. So for those six years you were with Merrill Lynch and did you transition into your own business after that? Well, no, I actually, as, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, there was just like almost this, uh, mindset of of greed that was that was forming in the industry in general. And so one of my managers uh, from Merrill Lynch went to work for another company and contacted myself and a guy that I was had formed a partnership with and he brought us over from Merrill Lynch to this new firm and we actually got upfront payouts to move, you know, that were pretty lucrative in our eyes at the time. And so we were like excited about that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, God has a way of humbling you when, when you get too full of yourself. As soon as we moved, we were like the 10th and 11th Merrill Lynch employees that had moved over to this new firm. And so Merrill Lynch took a really hard stance with us legally 
and they decided to enforce our employment contract. And we went to three-day arbitration oh, wow. and they actually got enforcement of the non-compete part of the employment contract, was it, which was a year that we couldn't contact our clients. And that was really damaging to our businesses. And so we had to really rebuild almost from scratch uh, because of that. But uh, it, it was a, it was a good lesson. And, you know, certainly the next time I made a move, I, I, I stayed at that firm that eventually got bought out by Payne Weber and then UBS bought Payne Weber out. I stayed at that firm for another five years and then got all my ducks in a row to go independent in 2004 and made that change and have been really glad that I did that. And it's, it's been a terrific experience uh, since 2004. Wow. That's a really cool story. Now I can imagine when Merrill Lynch came after you guys under that non-compete clause, uh, I could imagine that being, I don't know, a handful of different emotions. I think I would feel uh, feeling, you know, scared, feeling threatened, feeling, you know, kind of uncertain what's going to happen Walk me through where you were at in your own mind and heart as that was going on. Yeah, no question. All those feelings went through my mind. They were asking for a million dollars in damages, which I most certainly did not have (laughs) the financial wherewithal to pay at that time. Was that a million dollars from each of you? A million dollars between the two of us. So 500,000 each. The new firm that we were with was telling us, hey, we'll back you, but you, you never know for sure. You know, it's it's one of those things that, that as soon as they see that you may not be as productive of an asset as they thought they were acquiring, you never know if they'll let you twist in the wind or not. Yeah. To their credit, they did give us a lot of support, paid all our legal fees, all those all those sorts of things. Uh, but it, yeah, there was a lot of fear. And you know, fortunately, th- none of the financial damages were enforced, but the, but the year enforcement of the non-compete was, and, and that was uh, something that we had to rebuild and and we started a radio show right after that and and that was that was kind of the catalyst to help us you know get our book of business back where it was when we made the move uh, from Merrill Lynch to the new firm. Yeah, so you say we was that the company or you and this other guy who was it that was involved in that radio show? Me, yeah, me and this other guy. Okay, and what was your thinking there? Why did you think a radio show was a good move? Well, we because they were able to enforce the non compete. We we did have. You know, some clients that we had really good relationships with that, that moved over and they were just insisting that they come with us. But, but the ones that were more customers than clients, they, you know, of course, stayed with the, with the firm because we weren't able to legally contact them. You know, so we had to really rebuild our business as fast as we could. And, and the radio show at the time was a good way to do that because we were able to get a lot of leads every week from being on the radio. We were reaching a larger presence of people and were able to offer financial advisory services, financial planning, counseling, and, you know, the, and, and draw people in. And, and so we we're fortunate enough to, to build our business through that method uh, over the next two years. So walk me through the format of your show. What, what, how did you present the show as a benefit to the listener? And then how did you weave in your call to action that got you so much business? It, it was a call-in show. So we had a, a moderator that was at the radio station and he did a great job. And so we would start with about 10 minutes each of scripted material where we tried to talk about a fascinating topic in, in the area of investment planning 
And then we would have the last 30 minutes. It was an hour show. So we had the last 30 minutes for call-ins and then we would just field questions. And so I think, you know, that having that interaction helped to give us an opportunity to display knowledge and wisdom. And then at the end we said, you know, Hey, if you have uh, some interest in getting a free consultation and would like for us to look over your, uh, create a financial plan for you, then we would be glad to do that. So we got a lot of leads that way. That makes sense. I, I could see a Q and a format like that being very helpful, both for demonstrating your authority on the subjects that you're talking about, but also for the sake of building that no like, and trust factor. Right. People. It was a great precursor to podcasting. I mean, it, you know, that experience definitely showed me the value that podcasting can bring and, and your ability to reach niche audiences. Niche audiences. Don't let those words escape you. Do you understand what that means? It means specific audiences of people who are all interested in very specific niched topics. Ashley used his experience and expertise in financial planning to reach out to people who are specifically interested in financial planning. And in this next part of Ashley's story, we're going to hear how he refined that concept even further to pursue people interested in financial planning who were interested in a specific type of approach to managing their finances, an approach Ashley refers to as stewardship. It's a biblical concept, flows right out of his Christian faith, his perception of how we're to manage our money. And naturally, he understood there were people out there who held to those same beliefs and that they are people he would be best equipped to serve because of their complementary way of looking at things. Man, this is powerful stuff. Whatever your topic is in your podcast, you have a niche audience out there who views things very much the same way you do. And they are the ones you've got to find and you've got to serve. Now, before we get into that niche idea, Ashley is going to share with us his perspective of the difference between a client and a customer. And it's vital to this topic because when you understand this difference, and in our context, it's the difference between a listener and a true fan. Then you're able to really pull out all the stops and add value that is specific to them and build that know, like, and trust that we've been talking about. Let's get back to Ashley's description of what happened in his journey. Back when you were describing the transition from Merrill Lynch to the other company. And you mentioned that there were certain clients that wanted to come with you because they were more clients than they were customers. I love the way you said that. I want to hear more about how you see that distinction and why I assume from what you said, the client relationship is more important than a customer relationship and, and why you should be heading people in that direction. Yeah, no question. I, I think it just is a, a mindset that you're never off the clock that that you're there. You know, that's probably not, not, not something that a lot of people want to hear or even embrace, but, but I, I have that mindset that, you know, if someone needs something and it's, it's within my power to help them, then I'm going to try to provide a timely answer and, and not think about, you know, what's in it for me. 
I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to meet needs. I'm going to try to be as good of a whole life advisor to people as I can. And, you know, now there's times on Sunday afternoons where if somebody texts me or somebody sends me an email, I'm not going to respond right away. I'm going to wait till Monday morning to do that. But, uh, but if, even if it's on a, a Friday night, you know, I try to get to them Saturday morning or, or Saturday, I try to get to them later that afternoon. So Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of the great Puritan writers said this, and it's always stuck with me, uh, do the maximum amount of good to the maximum amount of people. And I, and I think if you have that mindset, then you will find yourself attracting clients and not customers. And so how would you just succinctly define the difference between a client and a customer? A client, someone that is loyal to you and you're loyal to them. I, I think it's it just it comes down to you know people do business with with those that they know that they like and they trust and so i think ultimately a client comes down to mutual trust whereas a customer sees it as a, a transaction so they'll leave you for any variety of reasons if they think they can get a better deal a client is someone that values the relationship more than that and and wants to uh, stick with you even if there's someone that offers a slightly you know, lower price or, or something that may seem appealing on the surface, they're going to be less likely to leave because they view you as a trusted advisor. So the client side is much more relationally oriented. The customer side is more commodity or transaction right. oriented. Yeah. And so digging into that a little bit, obviously we all hear those definitions and we'd want more of the client relationships because they seem better just overall. Um, what it, what would be your advice to someone about what it takes to build a client relationship? It comes down to consistency. It always amazes me that people will be able to tolerate mistakes. You know, they they don't have an expectation that you're going to be perfect, uh, but they do have an expectation that you're going to give them consistent service and that you sh- that you're going to show you care. I, you know, it's it, those two things. I would say. Empathy and consistency are the, are the things that probably stick out. And what do those two things do for the person on the client side? You know, they're not the service provider. They're the one being served. Right. What do consistency and empathy do for them? Build trust. They are hiring you. In my case, you know, most of the people that hire me are doing it because they're too busy. They don't want to learn how the sausage is made, so to speak. They just want you know, someone that they trust that will take care of their money and treat it as their own. And, and really that's the heart of stewardship is, you know, we went on vacation last week and I was emphasizing this with my kids. I, you know, I said, Hey, when we, we rent this house, you know, we want to make sure that we leave this house better than what we found it. And, and, and that should be our mentality with relationships also that, you know, when relationships come into our lives, we want to add value to them. We want to leave that relationship better than when we found it. And so that's, I think the heart of uh, stewardship is, is having that mindset with clients and, and people that you meet so that you can be a blessing to them. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And you've mentioned a few times here, the word stewardship. And I know that's a, a big focus of how you go about your, your wealth management practice. Uh, describe for me what you mean by that word. I think in a nutshell, it is understanding that as a Christian, everything you have is a gift. It's it's a gift from God. And so how you use those gifts 
is really your your act of worship back to God. And so I view all of the money that I've been able to accumulate is not mine. It's it's it comes from God. God's the source. I believe my time is in God's hands. You know, I I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Uh, every day is a blessing. Every day is a gift. I believe that you know God's put me in the United States of America. He's given me great educational opportunities, uh, great people that have that have impacted my life, and and those are gifts. Uh, so those those have impacted my abilities, and he's blessed me with pretty good health, also. So you know, those are all gifts that we need to consider them as gifts, and and then how we grow them, how we how we use them is is really our our way of worshiping God. So so that's what I, I that's how I see stewardship is is these are the gifts that we've been given, and we want to use these gifts to impact other people. Yeah, yeah, and so that leads me to. The questions about your podcast. Full disclosure here, Ashley and I do hold to similar spiritual beliefs, but that is not why I'm having him on the podcast. I think what we've just heard from Ashley about this issue of clients and customers and targeting a niche audience is some of the most important things every podcaster needs to learn, especially if you've got something to sell, if you are trying to make a living from this thing you call podcasting, if you're trying to run a business and using podcasting as part of your content marketing, man, you've got to get this down. And Ashley has just figured it out. I would love to serve you in helping you narrow down your target to a niche audience that you can serve especially well, just like Ashley does. You see how his target audience fits his own personality and beliefs. It makes for a win-win combination. You're going to hear more about that as we continue on here. But to wrap up this little mid-roll break, I want to invite you to consider signing up for a consulting call. You will be surprised how an objective set of experienced eyes can help you find the things you really need to hit that target audience right in the bullseye. All right, let's get back to Ashley's podcaster story. Your podcast is named Whole Life Stewardship, and it's obvious you're wanting to communicate that truth, but there's also you know, practical financial advice and all of that that happens within the time allotted for each episode. Walk me through the journey from radio show to starting your own practice to finally deciding, Hey, I should do a podcast. There was probably 16 years in between the radio show and the first podcast. I started becoming just an avid listener to podcast. And, and I love that form of education I have a dog that I walk every day and it's an opportunity for me to, you know, learn while I walk the dog instead of, you know, listening to radio in the car. I listen to podcasts now and I listen to double speed because I want to, <laughs> I want to be as time efficient as possible. Uh, so, so that, you know, really started with just a desire to learn and to grow and and then I thought, you know, hey, I this would be a good way for me to reach my client base 
and others that may be seeking this type of information as well. And so that's, that's really the genesis of it. I, I didn't really think there might be a lot of business uh, benefit in it, at least in, in the initial, you know, initial year or two, I thought it would take a lot of time to get some benefit from it uh, from a business perspective. But I, but I've been pleasantly surprised that a few of my new clients, my larger new clients have mentioned that the podcast was their gateway into, you know, knowing who I am uh, or, you know, or, or a relationship uh, strengthener, you know, that maybe they knew who I was, but then, they went to the website and then they listened to a few podcasts and it gave them the confidence that, Hey, this is a guy I want to contact and, and meet with to see if he would be interested in, in managing my wealth. And, and, and so it, it's just been a great way for me to reach a niche market and, and, and really sharpen the saw, so to speak. I, I, I think that was always the greatest thing about the radio show is the preparation requires you to read. Uh, reading's good you know, then it requires you to think and put your thoughts on, on paper and script out, you know, some of the things you want to say. And, and I've, I've found that to be true with the podcast as well. It, it, it leads me into new areas of learning that really help my business. Hmm. So your motive in starting the podcast was really just to be of service to yeah. offer, you know, help to people who needed the help, but it's, it's turned into more than that. It's turned into a relationship building tool what is it about podcasting in particular that you see from your experience that enables it to do that, to build that trust? My focus on the podcast I'm doing is to try to keep it simple and to keep it between 10 and 25 minutes for most of the episodes. And I'm doing it only once every two weeks, but I've been doing it for a little over a year now. I think I'm on my 31st episode right now. I would say that like most things, just being able to put up consistent content, I think is helpful to your brand. It's a time multiplier because you only have so many hours in a day and more and more people don't want to talk on the phone anymore. You know, a lot of communications done today by texting and email. And I I found with my client base, certainly, uh, which fits my personality fine, that, that the number of phone calls has been cut down dramatically uh, but podcasting is just a, a new medium for reaching people with a message. And I think it's a, a medium that a lot of people should take advantage of because technology makes it so inexpensive to, you know, to be able to reach an audience with that method. And, and so I, I think it just the efficiency of it and, and the ability to really stay sharp is the two things that appeal to me. Due to the personal nature of podcasting, meaning the person who's receiving the content on the listener side is usually alone listening. You know, I don't know many people who listen in groups. <laughs> it's, it's usually in their car commuting or on the treadmill or all that. How do you think that plays into the, the no like, and trust factor that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, yeah that's a great point. I, it's not, it's something I really haven't put a lot of thought to, but you're right. You know, if you're listening while you're walking or while you're at the gym or while you're in the car you usually have a captivated audience. They're not distracted. You know, so I think that's a huge part of of why podcasting is so effective is you have somebody's attention. And versus if you're watching a television show, sometimes you're watching it with other people. And sometimes you're on your computer while you're watching a television show or you're on your smartphone. Uh, So you, you just have a distracted mind while you're, while you're doing that activity. But, but I see podcasting is different because 
like you said, I mean, if, if you're driving, hopefully you're not on your phone while you're driving, you're, you know, listening and you're able to process and, and get some stillness of mind while, while you concentrate on the material. So that alone, I think is a, is a reason that it's a, an effective uh, medium. Yeah. And I often have thought of podcasting in terms of how it's similar to other types of interactions that we have with people. Now, of course, it's, it's limited in that it's a one-way communication, but it's also individualized. You know, it's, it's one person talking to one person, and it's kind of like sitting down over coffee right. and hearing someone's story because you're hearing the tone of their voice and their inflection and the emotion that's being portrayed in their, in their words. You're able to get a sense of who that person is. And when you're the host and you're giving something of value to someone on the other end, they're able to perceive that in a much more personal way, I think, than is possible even even maybe on vi- than on video because it's right there in their earbuds, you know, and right. and there's there's not all these you know peripheral distractions in their vision that that could be distracting them. It's just, I mean, you can't get away from it if it's right in your ears. <laughs> That's an awesome point because. I think about sermons and, and I and I actually prefer to listen to sermons on podcasts than I do in person. And I think a lot of it is what you bring up. When you watch a sermon live, you have other people around you. So you tend to be distracted looking at other people, or you have a screen up there where you're watching the preacher or you're watching body language. Whereas with a podcast, you you don't have those distractions because so so much of communication is body language. And so video and live, you're focusing on that probably more than you should versus the substance of what they ha- they're saying. That's something that I've probably thought about for the first time now, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think it's part of why podcasting is proving to be so effective for building relationships uh, similar to what you were describing, the client versus the customer. Give me your thoughts about that. How is the development of a relationship with a listener to your podcast similar to developing the relationship with the client? Yeah, I think it just gives them an opportunity if they're motivated to go through and listen to a lot of episodes that it builds trust, a lot of trust before you ever meet with them. Typically, my initial meetings take one to two hours and the the value of face-to-face is that you get to see body language, you get to, you know, look the person in the eye. And, and, you know, I, I, I definitely don't think that you can replace that. I mean, you have to, you have to have that to some degree, at least in my business, not every business, but in my business, I think you do, you know, but if, if someone is motivated to go back and listen to five or 10 episodes of your podcast, then they've already built up a certain level of trust before they ever meet you. And I think that's invaluable because that's the goal. You, you want to get them to trust you. And sometimes it may take four or five face-to-face meetings before they fully trust you uh, without a podcast. And if you have a podcast, you may be well ahead of the curve and you may be already in a position where that trust is built before you even meet face-to-face. Yeah. And that's something I've learned from just being able to work on a, another client's podcast. It's a sales and marketing kind of a show. And they're talking all the time, especially in the sales arena, about how sales has changed. And it's changed because of technology, because consumers are more educated than ever, and they take their buying decisions much more seriously than ever. 
because they can research products and services and companies to the nth degree before they ever pick up a phone and talk to somebody. And so for us on the on the business side, say, it seems like this person came out of nowhere and they're ready to buy. But in reality, they didn't come out of nowhere. They've been consuming content of which podcasts are a considerable piece of that, that has then built up the trust to enable them to buy. I think that's that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's a pretty remarkable thing. So from your podcast experience so far, you've been just at a year, you've been podcasting. What have been the benefits? I mean, you've mentioned uh, you've received clients, you know, directly from the podcast. How many would you say and and how has that impacted uh, your knowledge of, of who they are and the business that you're able to do with them? Right. So within the past six months, I've been able to bring in a little over $10 million in new assets. And I would say that represents seven or eight relationships. Every single one of those relationships has mentioned the podcast as either a reinforcer or an introduction to my philosophy that has helped build that trust. Uh, So I'm at a point in my business where most of my new business is referral-based and only three or four, let's see, of the seven or eight, I think three of them are people I didn't know previously. The other four or five I did know, but you know, even the ones I did know, it, it was not on a real deep level. So the podcast just really helped build the trust. And, and so I, from that standpoint, I think it's a great tool for any business person to use, to reach their audience, to reinforce their values, to, to really find that connection. And we all do better with with clients who who share the same values. I think any business person can relate. If if you get a client that doesn't have your values, then it's going to be a rockier relationship than the one that does share your values from the beginning. So I, th- I think it's just a great way to target you know who you want to reach and and really start to cater material uh, towards that person. Just so that we can put this into perspective, I know myself and many of the listeners to this episode uh, don't understand all the vernacular of financial planning, so. Tell me in a different way, what does 10 million in assets mean for the layperson? Financial planners focus on a lot of different goals. It's, you know, you can focus on strictly revenue production. I, I tend to charge a lot cheaper fees than the, than the average financial planner. So uh, $10 million in new assets uh, is is about $25,000. In revenue for me, you know, per year, but assets is what I focus on because, you know, you can always raise the fees if you feel like you need to raise the fees or if you feel like it's warranted to raise the fees. You know, I probably never would, but, but it's, it gives you optionality on the future when, when you focus on assets. Uh, but, but, you know, it's a, for every $10 million, it's about $25,000 in revenue. Wow. So that's significant for a year's worth of work that, it sounds like yeah. it's something you really enjoy at the same time. Yeah, I, I would say the return on investment is really good there. I spend, it's it's six hours a month and you're making $2,000 for those uh, six hours. You know, that's pretty good return on investment. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good hourly rate if that's how you want to look at it. That's, uh, that's right. pretty good. Tell me some of the ways that you've gone about promoting your podcast or getting the word out about it. Is it mainly through your website and newsletters to existing clients or how do you go about that? 
you know, that's the sad thing about it is I, I haven't really done a good job with that. I, I guess I've taken more of the mindset that I was going to get a lot of content up in the first year and then really focus on promoting it more in years two plus. So I, I've done very minimal promotion on social media, but I have included it in client emails when I send out emails to clients and, you know, just word of mouth, you know, through different relationships, uh, would, would share it, would, would encourage people to subscribe to it and spread the word. So it's been very much of a grassroots, uh, focus on the people that I know type of promotion in the beginning. Uh, but you know, I think as you get more and more content up, if someone puts a, a search for stewardship, you know, perhaps my name would show up on that, or if they, you know, stumble across it because it's similar to, you know, something else they're listening to, you know, all of that helps as you get more and more content up. And yet, I mean, the amazing part is even though you haven't promoted it very much, you're getting 10 million in assets. Right. It's just amazing because part of the, I think the leverage that podcasting brings is that people come to podcasting looking for specific topics and you just have to be in that niche, you know, publishing content for them to be able to select from. And there's all kinds of things that, that go into deciding or determining whether they select you or not, obviously. But one of those is just providing helpful content and building that no like trust factor, like you're describing. So that's, I love it. That's, that's been so effective for you. Impressive. $25,000 in income after only one year of podcasting. Now, let's be clear about what Ashley did and did not do. He did not go courting sponsorships. Did you hear that? He did not court sponsorships. He positioned his podcast in a way that, number one, it appealed to that niche audience who he knew would resonate with his message spoken his way. Number two, He provided the exact service that audience needs and wants. In my opinion, this is one of the most powerful and effective ways for any podcaster to make money from podcasting. It's not by having someone else give you money for creating a podcast. It's by serving people with the exact content they're looking for. Ashley makes that point beautifully. When you give them what they're looking for, They begin to know you, like you, and trust you. And it makes the conversation that leads to business much, much more effective. Man, I just can't emphasize this enough. Ashley has nailed it on this. And as you can see, he hasn't even been promoting his episodes all that much. He's just being consistent. And I might point out, using keywords in the name of his podcast title to make it clear that those who are searching for that niche topic can find him whenever possible. Friends, pay attention to what he's doing here. This is some amazing stuff. Now, did you do that intentionally that rotating type of format where you're the main voice one episode and a guest another it was there a strategy behind that i think it was uh, more of a people will get sick of hearing just me <laughs> <laughs> you know so so i think 
you know, and, and maybe I don't have enough interesting things to say to do two podcasts, uh, just me every month. Uh, but you know, yeah. So I think, I think it's just to keep it, you know, some variety in it and, and, and try to learn from other people. Like, you know, one of my interviews last week was with one of my good friends, who's also a client and just that process of interviewing him. I learned some things about him. I didn't know, you know, doing interviews like this, you know, you learn things about people that you maybe had one perception and, and it, you know, led you down a path that was a surprise to you. And and it's, it's always cool to interact with, you know, people that have, have done some neat things and have uh, had some success in some areas and, and to learn from them. So I, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like you didn't realize this, but what I've seen with podcasters is that the people who do a rotating kind of frequency of episodes like you're doing, where you have your voice one week, some someone else the next week, so to speak. In my observation, I have no data behind this, but in my observation, those clients are much more effective at building, I guess I would say a client base, if that's their goal, more quickly. Because they are building that no like and trust factor by having those solo episodes, right? Uh, to a much more effective degree, I think. And so it, it's funny. I recommend that to clients all the time, and most are just content to stick with their interview format, which kind of baffles me. Right. But I think you've stumbled onto something that's very effective. So, so kudos to you on that. Thank you. Just a few more things here. As you got started in podcasting, what were the hurdles that you had to overcome to actually get started? There, there still is this aspect of it that, you know, you get to Sunday afternoon and you're like, oh no, what am I going to talk about this week? You know, <laughs> there, there's, uh, there's definitely that that continues on. I try to do a little bit of planning. If I'm doing one every two weeks, as I read, I, I try to read for an hour a day. Uh, so as I read, I keep a journal and, uh, I see something that's like, oh, that would be good on the podcast, you know. So, so I'm, I'm always hunting for material to use on the podcast. Uh, but ultimately, the, I guess the hurt, the main hurdle for me is just uh, carving out the time to actually write a script and and to you know have an organized plan for what I'm going to present the for the next one. Yeah, organization is a huge, huge struggle for a lot of podcasters, just because it's. You know, it is a pressing deadline, so to speak, even though it's a self-imposed one. Right. And it's, you know, you want to be faithful to your commitment to your listeners. So right. uh, being being organized enough to ensure that you're providing true value is quite a task. It's one I think all podcasters struggle with. So if you had some advice to pass on to a brand new podcaster, or maybe even somebody who's considering podcasting, say they're, uh, you know, a real estate agent or a masseuse or uh, you know, a chiropractor, what would your advice to them be? There are people looking for information and those uh, professionals have a level of expertise that the average person doesn't have. And even though they may not be confident that they're the best presenter, the best speaker, the most dynamic conversationalist, there's value that you know, anyone that's looking for that information can discover from someone that's willing to put themselves out there. And, you know, we're, we're just in this incredible transformation period where all of this information that, you know, in the past, if you wanted to get information to somebody, you had to write a book and you had to spend months, you know, preparing 
that information. And, and now you can just get a, you know, microphone and get it your computer and verbally, you know, give a lot of that information in, in, in a couple hours. And so it's just created this uh, massive revolution in the way we consume information. And, you, you know, I, I know my own habits, I'm reading less and I'm, I'm listening to podcasts more. I still carve out time to read. Uh, but, you know, I, I think as we continue to find out ways we're going to learn, you know, voice interaction, you know, things like Echo and Siri, that's going to replace a lot of our, our internet searches going forward and, and already is. Uh, so, so I think, I think podcast is a preferred, you know, method of communication for a lot of people and a, a way that people learn. And so a lot of the written emails and, and some things that people were doing in the past probably aren't as effective as, as they think they are. And, and, uh, you know, I, I would just encourage people to try podcasting because I think it's a really effective means of communication. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, one last question. It's kind of two questions in one, but they're closely connected. You, to me, are an example of a very niche specific podcast. Uh, right. Number one, you're talking about wealth management, which is a little different than your right. basic financial planning kind of a podcast. But then you're also approaching it with a distinctly and overtly Christian perspective. So that that makes you even more niched. So give me your insights into why you thought being so niched in was a good idea and what type of results or benefits you see from doing so. In areas that it's a crowded marketplace, and I would consider financial advisory to be a crowded marketplace, I think you really need to stand out and, and develop a niche, something that you're passionate about. You know, hey, these are the things I love to do. I want I want to try to attract people that are like-minded. You know, that's the way podcasting is to me, or that's why I decided to go with such a specific niche is, I mean, ultimately, I've just found that the clients that I just really love are are people that have this stewardship mindset and they tend to be the the types that are going to be full of grace and, and, you know, people that really have a concern for other people. And so they make great clients and, and, you know, that's the type of life I want to live. And and those are the type of people I want to attract into my life. So that's, that's really the motivation for it. Yeah, that's great. And don't you think you are able to better serve those people too, because you get them a little more? Them and what? What do you mean by that? I mean, uh, I mean, you them. you get who they are as people. Yes, yes, um, no question. That it just makes total sense to me, and and so to me that answers the question you hear quite often, where someone says, "Well, there's 200 financial advisor podcasts. Why would anybody want to listen to mine?" And it's because you have a unique, or you should have a unique approach. Yeah, that others are looking for. Right. Thank you so much for listening to these podcaster stories. I'm having such a great time carrying on these conversations and listening to the cool things that people like Ashley have discovered. If you want to learn more about Ashley Hodge and his approach to financial planning based around stewardship, you can find out more at ashleyhodge.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y Hodge, H-O-D-G-E.com. Or you can check out his podcast, called Whole Life Stewardship. This episode features a handful of musical tunes 
that I would love for you to know about. There's this amazing guy named Jason Shaw who creates all kinds of free music over at his website, audionautics.com. There's two of his pieces I've included in this episode. At 17 seconds in is one called Phase Shifter. And then at nine minutes and 20 seconds in is one called What the Funk? And we cannot forget Kevin McLeod. Kevin McLeod provides all kinds of music over at a website called Incompetech.com. The one you're listening to right now is one of his. It's called Shaving Mirror, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. And back at 49 minutes and 26 seconds was a piece called Pepe Pepe. (laughs) That's by Kevin as well. Incompetech.com licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. My friends, I just appreciate you passing these episodes along, learning your lessons and applying things. And hey, if you receive value from what Ashley had to share today, I would love to know because I would love to let Ashley know that his story has benefited you. Please reach out to me. My email address is carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, at podcastfasttrack.com. Now go make it a podcastificating day. 